So in Ephesians chapter 1, we saw a very long sentence, in the Greek at least, it's a long sentence, from all the way from verse 3 to 14 is one long sentence. In fact, 203 words. So how do you follow a record-setting sentence like that? <laughs> Imagine poor old Apostle Paul being stuck in this situation. Well, Apostle Paul, after writing this really long 203-word single sentence that is praising the love of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And uh, how do you follow that? Well, here's how he does it. He, he explained why he was so concerned that the Ephesians would know of God's love. So we're, that's what we're going to look at today. He, he's going to show us that. And so what rightly motivates God's people then to gather for his purposes and then to live out God's purposes in a world that doesn't really seem to care that much? Well, the answer is found in Paul's own words here as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he is in prison. This is considered one of the prison epistles. And so he's writing from prison to his spiritual children here in Ephesus. And look look how he, re, how he follows up this 203-word sentence, starting in verse 15. Verse 15. For this reason. What, what reason? Well, that's all those 203 words <laughs> for that reason. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having your eyes, or sorry, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So I propose to you today from this particular text, Here's what God wants you to do. It's on the screen. The proposition is this, that God wants you to know what He is doing in and through us so that we always speak of the hope, the riches, and the power that belong to the church. Now, just so you understand, when I use the word church, <laughs> I'm thinking of the Greek word ekklesia which is uh, how it, that Greek word ekklesia translated in your Bible as church is, is referring to all the believers, all the believers in our world, those who have put their faith in Christ alone. So I'm not referring to a denomination or some a group like, like that. It's, it's the Christians that, that are making up the church here. And that's what I'm referring to. That's what the Bible's referring to. So 
if you're an unbeliever, you don't, you don't fit into this category, uh, the bride of Christ or the church. So my friends, may today be the day that you come to Christ if you're not a member of the church. So let's think about here, what motivates then the church to live out God's purposes? What's going to motivate? We need motivation, and that's, that's, it's a good thing. And, and so the Holy Spirit's going to give us some wonderful motivation. And the first motivation that he gives is spiritual support. The first motivation is spiritual support here in verses 15 and 16. This is good stuff. So despite all the secularism and the materialism of our own culture, uh, despite that, there is a a longing for spiritual support in people's lives. It's a good thing. God designed us that way. So what does meaningful spiritual support include? Well, two things are mentioned here in the text. And the first thing the Holy Spirit mentions is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, because Paul says uh, there in verse 15, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. The cause, notice the cause here for Paul's thanks is two things. We'll, we'll highlight these in a moment, but two, two things are mentioned. It's the Ephesians, faith and love. The object of their faith here in this context is the Lord Jesus Christ. The object of their love, notice is uh, the Ephesians' love, is for all the saints. And what does Paul give thanks for? What does he give thanks for? Well, he commends them for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does faith look like? Faith is not a blind leap in the dark like some people have described. Faith is reasonable. There is a foundation. There's basis behind faith. And, And in this case, faith is you're relying upon God himself, what he said who he is, what he's promised to do. He, 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 you're relying on God's provision and living for his glory in the midst of a sinful, self-centered culture, just like the Ephesians. Well, some would say, well, are, are the Ephesians uh, doing this perfectly? Did they do this perfectly? Are they really worthy of this commendation here? Well, of course they're not perfect. <laughs> In fact, if you keep reading through the book of Ephesians, Paul's going to point out some things, right? Of course they're not perfect. But Paul commends them as he's looking at their their lives and their church, he's commending them for the evidence of grace that he does see in their life. By the way, that's a good pattern to follow. Look for evidence of grace in people's lives and then commend them for that. And, and, And the second thing that he commends them for, notice is, for their love, and notice the love for all the saints. So their love was worthy of commendation because their love didn't, it wasn't discriminating. It didn't, in other words, it didn't matter if they were a Jew or a Gentile. It didn't matter what color their skin was. It didn't matter what social standing they had in life, whether they were free or slave or whatever it might be. Their love was without discrimination and resentment. That's the way love should be. Again, were they perfect? No, of course not. In fact, much of the book of Ephesians is going to be Paul exhorting the church to overcome all the barriers to their unity. Much of the book talks about unity, uh, their, their oneness that they should have in Christ. 
Let me just um, give you some thoughts as we think about some application here. Praise people whenever you notice evidence of grace in their lives. By evidence of grace, I mean it's just it's what you it's what you see the Holy Spirit doing in someone's life. The, the fruit of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, so forth. Right? When, when you see that happening in somebody's life, praise God and praise the person. This is important. And one reason it's, it's important is because people cannot grow in a toxic environment where, where people are, only have their failings and their sin pointed out to them and, and constantly remembered, right? It's, it's like a plant. Plants, plants need certain environments to grow. They need the water and the nutrients and, and, and a certain level of temperature and so forth, right? Too hot, it's going to probably die. If it's freezing cold, it's going to die. If it's missing certain elements that it needs, it's, it's probably going to die. And people are the same way. Let's not put ourselves in toxic environments it, it, particularly as we think of trying to have unity in the church, there shouldn't be a toxic environment. It should be an environment where we can we have everything we need so that we can thrive. One of the ways you can do that is noticing the evidence of grace in people's lives and commend them for it. So, first we, we, we see here that spiritual support includes thanksgiving. But notice there's a second point. Number two is the spiritual support should also include intercession. Intercession. Paul says there in verse 16, after he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, notice he says, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul prays for others here. And notice he's not just praying for them sitting in prison, but he informs them of what he's actually doing. He tells them, hey, I'm praying for you. That's important. You say, why? Well, knowledge that somebody is praying for you is encouraging, and it it actually will build up the church. So if you think if, if that is the case, which it is, then we need to pray specifically for one another. Now Paul's going to he gets into specifics you'll see in his letters he typically shows you specific things he's praying for and I suggest you read the prayers of the Bible study those prayers and use those prayers so you know how to specifically pray but that means you have to go and also talk to people then don't you find out what are their needs what are their struggles what's their challenges so you can then pray specifically for another believer and then do it regularly do it regularly that's a good example because Paul's saying, hey, uh, I, I don't cease to do this. I don't cease to do this for you. And so if you're praying for somebody, by all means, let them know that you're doing that so then you can encourage that person. I love to hear that. I, I, I need your prayers. You need our prayers. So what motivates the church to live out God's purposes? What we see in this text, first of all, it's spiritual support. You're not alone. But second, all there, second, we see here that there, there's another motivation, and it's spiritual insight. Spiritual insight. Knowing that the greatest needs that you and I have, we have, is, is spiritual, right? That Paul makes the content of his prayer then a request 
for their spiritual insights. Since your greatest need is spiritual, not physical, you need spiritual insight. You say, why? Well, if our world is is not going to overwhelm us, we have to know what we see is not full reality. You don't want to be tricked into or, or deceived or de- believing that what you see is full reality. We need to see the spiritual reality that is not often apparent to your physical eyes. So how do we gain this insight? Well, Scripture tells us, and in fact, the, the, the text here informs us, it's, it's both divine and the human agencies have a role to play in our spiritual insight. See, heaven has to give, but your heart also has to receive. See, communication, if you will, is a, is a two-way street. Right? If you think of a radio tower sending out waves out of the radio tower, that radio tower needs a receiver. The radio tower could be sending out all kinds of information, but if there's no receiver, what, what's happening? Nothing's happening. There's no receiving going on. The information's not being received. So heaven's, heaven's sending out the information here to you, this insight, but you need to have a heart that's receptive. And so the, the text is telling us this. We, we see that, first of all, that, that the spiritual insight, notice where it's coming from. Verse 17 is coming from God's provision. Because we see in verse 17 that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. So it starts with Him. And notice what Paul's doing here. Paul prays that God would give the knowledge of Himself to His people. By the way, there is some debate, if you look at verse 17 there, there's some debate among commentators about whether the the word spirit, should it be a small s or a capital S. Now, if you're looking at a new KJV, uh, if I remember correctly, I did look it up. I believe it's a small s. ESV has interpreted it and put a capital S. Um, I'm going with the capital S, Holy Spirit, in this situation. And my reasons for that, um, what I'm saying is I'm agreeing with the English Standard Version's interpretation. Is, Is it the Holy Spirit? Yes, I think so. The Holy Spirit seems to fit the context. He does fit the context better because we've heard about the Trinity from, all the way from verses three to fourteen. It's, it's ended with talking about the Holy Spirit in, in verses thirteen and fourteen. So he, he's he's the one who, who's been talked about already. He's the one who's fitting the context. And some people say, well, hey, there's no there's no article the. Showing that it's well, it doesn't you don't have first of all you don't have to have an article the to be the Holy Spirit, okay? And that's how some commentators have said that's why it's a small s. But um, you don't have to have the article the before the word spirit for it to be the Holy Spirit. But however you land on this particular issue, there's here's where there is no question: the, the wisdom and the revelation are something that's needed. And it is God's gift to us. The, the wisdom and the revelation is God's gift to us because we need it. So, what should you do? Well, 
do what King Solomon did. Pray for it. (laughs) Request it. Ask for it. Pray for God's wisdom because we all need it. He is the God of wisdom. You, You don't have a better source to go to. Far better than Google or Wikipedia. So spiritual insights, notice, first of all, it's coming from God's provision. But number two, the spiritual insight is is coming to a receptive heart, as verse 18 tells us. Because this this person here is having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So pray for God to act is, uh, is only part of the equation here. It's only half of the prayer that's needed for spiritual growth in God's people. See, you have to also pray that your very being, your heart, would would receive God's gift that He's sending to you, His provision. And since the needs of God's people are, of course, profound, what does Paul do? Paul prays that their spiritual eyes, not physical, their spiritual eyes would be opened so that they could actually see God's provision. You say, what provision? What does Paul want them to know? Well, that's the end of verse 18. And notice, what what is the spiritual insight giving you provision to see? Number one is that the spiritual insight sees hope. Sees hope. Because God enables you to have these eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope. What hope? That's the first question you should be asking, because it says hope, but what hope? Well, we've, we've already heard about this great hope all the way from verse 3 to 14. And you have to remember that the world is, belongs to the Lord. He's the creator of everything, and, and uh, all believers and Christians are His forever. The universe is, is not random. God has said we will never be abandoned, and our God is, of course, just. He is gracious. He's sovereign. He's a saving God. And so this was the Ephesians' hope that all those verses have been telling us about. And not just for the Ephesians, it's our hope as well. It's our hope. You recognize the significance of that hope when you hear various voices in our world that don't have this hope. By voices, I, I mean the, the, particularly the celebrities and the authors and the, uh, the various uh, stars, so-called stars of this world, give, give us lots of examples of where they're lacking in hope. I found one interesting one here. Listen, look at this. There's an example, uh, you can find it on the Internet, where if you, if, I'm not recommending this particular pop musical group, by the way, but Vertical Horizon Uh, is obviously running out of hope when they wrote this particular song entitled Lines Upon Your Face. And here, look what they lament in this song. They said, quote, Sometimes I wish that we all were immortal and the game of life always had a happy end, but I know it's not true. That's sad. That's really sad. You could repeat this concept, these people's beliefs, Many, many ways. Just do Google searches, and you'll find all sorts of sad people who have no hope. I find that song very sad because, like I said, they have no hope. Uh, And why do they not have hope? 
because they don't know reality. They're living in a fantasy world, and it's not bringing them hope. See, the truth is, God tells us, we're all immortal. And our time is eternal. And for everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ, there actually is a place where you can live happily ever after. You can. It's possible. That's why that song is so sad. Because they don't know Jesus. Therefore, they have no hope. But there's a second thing spiritual insight does. It it enables us to see the inheritance. It enables us to see the inheritance. Because notice, verse 18 says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So Paul prays the Ephesians here would know the riches of this spiritual inheritance that God provides for his children. Is that worth knowing about? Yes. And so this means that all the resources of heaven are, are, is our inheritance. And what is included in that? Well, that includes his mercy. God's providence, His provision, His promises, eternal life, just to name a few things, all of that belongs to someone who is in Christ. They're ours to claim because God is our Father, and this this loving Father treasures His children. That's why He gives them the inheritance. But next we see here that spiritual insight also sees God's power. God enables you to see His power. As verse 19 says, because it says, What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? You want to see God's power? It's interesting that Paul calls the Ephesians here to reject the pagan beliefs of magical power and to embrace heavenly power. Remember one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there in Ephesus, the temple of Diana, otherwise called Artemis. So they were embracing this, this magical power and all this the, from the false god Diana. And, but somebody coming to, coming to Christ needed to, to reject that and to believe in Christ. But not everybody can see God's power, even though it is present everywhere. It's kind of like light. Have you ever seen uh, pictures of the spectrum of light? Uh, you know, for example, a rainbow, right? You, you only see part of the spectrum of the light every time you see a rainbow. There's actually other parts in the spectrum of light that your human eyeballs can't even see. It's an interesting illustration. If you think about God's power in this way, uh, we, we need the spiritual eyes to see what the physical eyes can't see sometimes. And so Paul's praying for the Ephesians' senses to be made receptive by the Spirit so then they can face the earthly challenges with God's power. So what motivates the church to live out God's purposes? We've seen two things so far. Number one, what have we seen? Spiritual support. That's going to motivate God's people to fulfill God's purposes. But also, second, is the spiritual insight. And then third is spiritual power. Spiritual power is going to motivate 
God's people to fulfill God's purposes. Now, how do you make spiritual power apparent to God's people who seem to be uh, preoccupied and, and, and some are even oppressed by this world, just like the Ephesians were oppressed by their community? How's that going to happen? Well, let me give you an illustration that I heard about. Uh, I'm, this is what I'm told. I, I, I suppose it's accurate. I wouldn't be saying this, but I'm told that one therapy that's utilized by people who treat autistic children is that they cloud the lower half of their eyeglasses so that they can't see properly out through that lower part of their eyeglasses. Certainly, there's certain kinds of autism, I've been told, that apparently manifest themselves as, as a child who becomes completely focused on on one little dimension of their own experience. They become so self-absorbed and self-focused and they just have a hard time relating to any part of the world. And so uh, that kind of child becomes so focused on some habitual activity or even a familiar object that uh, interacting with that single aspect of life just becomes the child's entire world. It just becomes life-dominating. And so what they, what these uh, therapists, I don't know what else you call them, have done is that the glasses have been clouded at the very bottom, but then at the top of the eyeglasses, they've left it clear so that it actually forces the child to, to stop looking at themselves and their object and forcing them to look up. It forces them to take their eyes off their little world and to consider, hey, there's actually a a bigger, greater world out there that they need to be thinking about and interacting with. Well, in like manner, the Bible is is trying to kind of cloud the lower part of your vision in a way. And uh, it's trying to give you hope by lifting your eyes from this world and causing you to focus on another power that is far greater and better and one you need to be looking at. See, my friends, our hope resides in understanding this power that is above. But we're also going to talk about a power that is right here in a moment. We'll talk about that as well. But first of all, let's talk about hope in God's power. See, Paul says the power here is available to us, and it's in an immeasurably great power. In other words, you can't measure it. It's it's so big, there, there's nothing that can contain it. There's no scales big enough that you could put it on. There's no cup big enough to, to hold it. You know, it's just, it's immeasurable. Well, in what ways? Well, look what he says about the nature of God's power here. The first thing, the first thing is, is Paul says, it's resurrection power. It's resurrection power. After he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, He says it's according to the working of his great might that he, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Resurrection power is available. So God's power is is able here even to overcome the great enemies. Things like sin and death have been overcome through Christ. So for those dead in sin... You don't have to be stuck there. 
there's hope. New life in Christ is possible. For believers, a faithful witness is possible because you have resurrection power available to you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead and conquered Satan and death and your sin is available to all believers. But number two, you also have sovereign power. God's power is is a sovereign power. Because notice what verse 21 says, it's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's all-encompassing. So God's power places our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, above all of these rulers and forces of this world. Now, my understanding is that's referring to all the various classes of demons who serve Satan. To explain the sovereign power here, Paul actually mentions all the various authorities in our world and So even not only just the spiritual demons and and their power, but even the political rulers, the the physical might in our world is encompassed in that very verse when it mentions above every name that is named. That includes any authority on earth. You say, well, what's the point? Here's the point, my friends, is that Jesus Christ is greater than all of those authorities. He's greater than all of them. That's sovereign power. And we can hope in God's power because notice number three, it is church power. It's church power. Verse 22 talks about Christ has put all things under his feet, and it, uh, it's, it's under Christ's feet here, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all all in all. So what is Christ doing here with His power? See, He's using His power for the ecclesia, is the Greek word that we translated in English as church. And we might expect the apostle here to say that what Christ is doing with His power is for individual believers. We we love taking the Bible then apply it to us individually, but This text is applying it corporately to the church. See, He created all things. He's the head of all things. He continues to fill all things. Why is He doing that? Not for you individually, in this context. He's doing it in the interest of His church, the Bride of Christ. There's corporate application here. And there's a lot of implications that, that are coming down the pipe here to us as you think about these the, the corporate church and what that means. See, my friends, the, the universe is right now has con, is continuing to be constrained in, it, in its very path and its course. It's being bent in, in certain directions for the good of the bride of Christ. That's what it's saying. See, your perception um, may be wrong. Sometimes we get kind of negative as we look at our world, right? You read the news, you get a lot of negative stuff, and it's very easy. We can become depressed, in despair, reading all this negative stuff. So your perception uh, may seem to deny the very truth that this text is telling us. See, history's marching forward toward the triumph 
of the church. Jesus told us back in Matthew that nothing is going to conquer the church. Not even the gates of hell is going to prevail against it. Jesus said, I will build my church. (laughs) That's a promise, and he's keeping that promise. And so, he's using all things, it says. And that includes people, even the unbelievers, even your prime minister is serving Jesus Christ and his purposes. And that's a compelling reason, by the way, to be a part of a church, to be a part of the church. My friends, think of it this way. See, the entire world is Christ's bouquet to his bride. Now, there's people being married recently. There's, we got some marriages coming up, and, and usually there's flowers and, and, and lots of bouquet, you know, lots of flowers to get together, making up the bouquet. We love to give flowers to the uh, to the bride. That's that's a wonderful thing. But the entire world is Christ's bouquet. In this case, the groom gets the flowers. <laughs> Doesn't that seem a little strange? Does it? But anyway, that's the way. That's what's happening here. But what instrument is Christ using to fill up the earth with his eternal purposes? It's the church. The church is being used in this situation to accomplish God's purposes. And so that's why, uh, number two, we, there needs to be hope in the church. The church is mentioned here, and it should be bringing hope because God's putting all things under Christ's feet. God has made Christ the head of all things, it says, to the church. The church is His body, verse 23 says. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. Why? Why hope in the church? Well, that for which the universe is being filled here is itself the very instrument of His filling. It's kind of circular. In other words, here's here's what the text is telling us. Jesus is changing the world we live in for the good of the church, and how is he doing that? He's doing it by means of the church. See, Jesus isn't actually living here physically, right? He's in heaven. The Bible says our high priest is at the Father's right hand, at the throne of God in heaven, right? So how is Jesus accomplishing this? Through his church. So he's using the church to accomplish his purposes, and as we do, as the church does this, it's for the church's good. Do you get it? Can you can you see how the circular reason is going on here? That's cool. So think about what the purposes of the church mean for us, for for the believers. Here, here's just some thoughts to consider. First of all, the purpose of the church indicates, and Corinthians points this out as well, right? that we are part of a body. And, of course, the body shouldn't just, uh, the individual members of the body shouldn't just pick themselves out and do their own thing. See, remember this. There should be no mavericks. A maverick, I hope you understand that terminology. See, we, we, we live in an individualistic culture. And in an individual culture, you can forget this truth quite easily and become a maverick. We can talk about changing the culture, taking the gospel into the marketplace, but 
Sometimes Christians do it alone. You kind of become autonomous in your efforts to take the gospel into the marketplace. And while we do have individual responsibilities, of course you do. There there, there are commands and scriptures to individuals. uh, But you need to remember, we, we do not fulfill our calling if we seek to influence our culture without the church. Church needs to be unified, working together toward the same purpose. Second, the calling of the church also means there should be no deserters. You know what a deserter is, right? Even if you haven't been in the military, uh, hopefully you understand a deserter in the military is somebody who just doesn't fulfill their responsibility and their duty and they just take off. So to move forward without the church is really, if you think about it in military terms, you're moving beyond your supply lines and that's a bad thing when you're in you're in battle and you're in war. You're left hanging without the support you need. Some Christians are doing that very thing. You're declaring the body of Christ to be irrelevant to us, or at least contrary to our causes, anyway. And, and this can be easy to do because, quite frankly, sometimes Christ's bride is really ugly. You know what I mean? Sometimes the bride of Christ is ugly. By the way, we need to point the finger at ourselves here, because if you're a Christian, you make up the body of Christ. We can be ugly. We can be really nasty, unforgiving, unloving, ungracious, and going on and on and on here. We can become, what, what is the, there's a TV show, right? You can become a bridezilla. Ooh. Nevertheless, the church is the beloved of Christ, the only instrument that's going to ultimately fulfill God's purposes on this earth. The only institution that's going to carry on into heaven. See, family relationships cease to exist in heaven. Government institutions ceases to exist in heaven as we know it, because you have God. (laughs) And so this is why the church is worth the effort. A third thought to consider here is that the destiny of the church means there should be no despair. No despair. That's our temptation sometimes. See, yes, the church has weaknesses because you are a, still a sinner. And so she is the means, though, that Christ is using here to fill the world with His glory. The church is thought to be declaring the glory to all the nations. Despite her setbacks, her apparent losses, uh, losses, the church is not going to be stopped because Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My friends, believe what Jesus said. So those who serve her can have no higher calling than that. There should be no despair. Because Christ is building His church. And number four, the promises to the church mean there should be no surrender. Don't ever surrender. Why? Because the church, you see what verse 23 says, the church is the fullness of Christ, as verse 22 says, who is Christ? He's the head over all things. So God's power is over all things. The riches of heaven are provided to her, that is a great hope. 
So my friends, wow, there's some wonderful implications for you to consider. Because of who Christ is, being head over his church, the bride, and and in all that comes with being his bride, man, there's, there's some great thoughts that we need to think about. There's some purposes that we need to live out. And so, my friends, now, now we know that God calls us to be a part of his ongoing mission to take the church into the world. Notice how I said that, by the way. Because what do we try to do sometimes? We, we, try, to keep, we try to keep the world out of the church. And, and we make that the main focus. But, she, but Jesus wants us to take the church into the world to be the salt and the light, have that influence on the world. Now, my friends, I, I will not pretend that the challenges are going to be small. I'm not going to pretend that the challenges are going to, to come without pain. They probably will. But I can promise you that your efforts will not be in vain. They will not be in vain. See, through the church, God has determined to exert His power for the transformation of the world. Salt and light will have an influence. See, our Lord is calling us to something that's good, something that is great. So the question is, are you interested in being a part of that? So may your, I guess what I'm trying to say is, may your spiritual eyes be open here to what God is doing, and then through through us, the church, that we would speak of this hope of, of all of Christ's riches and, and the power that actually belong to the church. We have wonderful resources in Christ. And God wants you to know so that you would then use those resources. May God enable you to see that and know and use them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us the spiritual eyes to see all of these spiritual resources that we have in Christ and then to live them out, not just to know them, but use them in practical ways even. May we take the church as we go out these doors here today. May we take the church into the world. May we recognize what is the church, first of all. May we dwell together in unity and in power and go forth and declare your glory to the nations together. Would you unite us, one in Christ? Would you cause us to understand these glorious truths? What is reality? And then to live them out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.